Welcome to After Hours with me, Rick Kogan, and with Northwestern University tenured professor Bill Savage. <laughs> he made a point of that because not I had tenured, forgotten. not tenured. You're not tenured. No, 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 no. Oh, so you can full professor? Fired? No, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, with my lack of uh, higher education, <laughs> what's the difference? Um, I have what's called a continuing position. I have a very secure job, but okay, that's all I care yeah. about. <laughs> uh, Paul DeRico used to be at the Newberry Library. He's now the Chicago. History Museum's Director of Exhibitions. These are two of the most knowledgeable and passionate guys about life in general, but specifically Chicago. Uh, hi, boys. Hello. Hello. <laughs> we're here to talk <laughs> hi, about... Hi, Mr. Rick. We're, we're here to talk about <laughs> all sorts of things. But on July 10th, 1973... In a place called the Billy Goat Tavern, there was a gathering of people brought together by Mike Royko, who was who had just won the Pulitzer Prize the year before, uh, to taste beer. Mike, unbelievably, did not drink at all during this event. He was there, he said, to wash glasses and to break up fights. <laughs> there were no fights. There were a lot of uh, empty glasses. Uh there is the 50th anniversary of this takes place uh, Sunday, next Sunday from one to three at the venerable Old Town Alehouse. How did this come to be, guy? Whose idea? Whose idea was it, Paul, to say, "Hey, this is a good idea. Let's have a beer tasting." Yeah, I guess it was my idea. I was looking to do something around, you know, Royko's life and career, um, some way of kind of like honoring it and celebrating it. And I just happened to notice that the 50th anniversary for this very particular experience was coming up. And I thought it'd be a great way to get a whole range of people interested, given the kind of interest in particularly like beer and brewing and, and craft mm. brewing. So and on the one hand, you can kind of look at how the industry has changed in the last 50 years. But you can also use that as an opportunity to get people interested in Royko and his journalistic career. Well, this is all because there is a big, big exhibit planned for the Newberry Library on the life and times of Mike Royko. Royko. Right. Uh, the Newberry Library has uh, Royko's papers, which, by the way, include such... His ashtray. Right. You know, you need me to... I was, come on, man. That's where I was going. <laughs> okay, sorry. They've got... Uh, they, no, I mean, an ashtray, a Rolodex, where if you flip through, you can find... Uh, you know, John Belushi's number and oh, Studs sure. Terkel's number, sure. um, a, an old newspaper honor box, right? Tons and tons of great material. Um, his widow, Judy, donated lots and lots of stuff to the Newberry. And next spring, uh, the Newberry Library will be doing an exhibit, probably roughly June to September of 24, um, on Royko and his career, his legacy, his importance. Um, I'm involved in working on that. and Because, uh, specifically, because you have been teaching... Mike Royko. Yeah, um, I've been teaching um, parts of Boss since the late 90s, and when uh, One More Time came out from the University of Chicago Press in 99, I've been teaching that ever since, too. And just to lay one thing on the table before we delve into much more, um, you know, teaching undergrads at Northwestern, you know, introducing them to writers they'd never heard of. Sure. Like Nelson Algren, James Farrell. Well, this is what, to my mind, this is what college should be about. Exactly. For God's sake. Every, every year, without fail. Mike Royko is the one writer where my students say, I want more. I wish I'd heard of this guy. I want to read more by him. And this is in a high-pressure academic institution where yeah. they've got a lot of other things going on. Yeah. And, yeah, we're, we're looking at half a dozen columns because that's how much time you have for the one day. Do you assign boss? I, I use part of boss as an introductory material, his definition of neighborhoods at the start of Chapter 2. Paul, I'm interested. When did you, you – you're from Cleveland originally. That's right. right. 
You came to Chicago roughly, I don't know, 25 years ago. Oh, about 2005. Oh, 2005. <laughs> All right, 20 But it feels ago. like almost 20, <laughs> feels like almost, it's been a quarter of a century. Almost 20 years ago. Yeah. Mike, Mike was already dead then. When yeah. did you first? When did Mike come on your radar? You know, oddly enough, I mean, I, I knew about him when I was still a kid, probably about 10 or 11, because I remember my grandfather, I mean, he was syndicated, right? I mean, he yeah, was a sure, nationally sure, syndicated sure, journalist. Sure. So I remember... My grandfather was a regular reader of his column. It's how it was through my grandfather that I became aware of Royko, that I became aware of Studs Terkel, because mm-hmm. he had a bunch of the oral histories in his house. So when I, I moved here, these were already familiar figures for, for me. And you came here to study history at the University of Chicago, right? Actually, to study literature, study American literature. But then it kind of like, you know, I, I well, kind of took a turn in my focus <laughs> and then ended up, you know, really... Spending a lot of time looking at the city and its past. Right. Well, there's no way to teach Chicago literature without teaching Chicago history. No question. So I occasionally get referred to in the press as, you know, historian Bill Savage. I'm like, well, I got a promotion, you know, from <laughs> literary critic to historian. I'll take it. We got to take a little break. These uh, gentlemen are going to be on all the way till six o'clock and we'll get back to the Royco uh, Ale House uh, beer tasting event uh, and other matters, too, because uh, Mike is endlessly fascinating. As you people know, I did a piece. Remember, I did a piece, I think, on the 20th anniversary of his death in the Tribune. Mm-hmm. I think it was the 20th anniversary. And it the response was insane. We will be back. Welcome back. I'm sitting here and laughing with uh, Paul DeRico of the Chicago History Museum and Bill Savage of Northwestern University. And now we're thinking that perhaps the 1973 beer tasting did not take place at the Billy Goat Tavern, which was Mike's home away from home, but at the Sybaris Lounge atop the John Hancock Building, which whatever it's called now, uh, it's always the Hancock Building to me. It doesn't really matter where it took place. Mike gathered 11 friends, one of whom was Don DeBat. I don't know any others who might be alive from that crowd because uh, he thought American beer stunk, frankly. Hmm. Not an uncommon position to hold then as now. And by American beer, it would have been the the giant breweries that uh, they're the only ones with the economic resources to survive prohibition. Yeah. Um, by making soda pop, by making near beer, you know, by being too big to fail. Um, so when Prohibition ended, all the little tiny breweries that had been scattered all over America were mostly done, except a few that had been operating illegally who maybe came back a little quicker. And so then American beer became Budweiser and Miller, and, you know, that was that. As Mike famously said, Budweiser, America's most popular beer, tasted like it was run through the bladder of a horse. Probably a Clydesdale. Uh, yeah, could, it certainly could be. So you get this notion to there's the, to sort of, in, in building up to the event at the Newberry Library, which is to celebrate Mike, uh, there may be even more sorts of events surrounding this whole thing. How did this thing? You got the idea, Paul, and then you you got we got in you got in touch with uh, Liz Garibay, who That's might right. seem perfect. Yeah. So I mean, the first thing I did when we decided, you know, that this might be a good idea is I turned to uh, Liz from the Chicago Museum because she seemed like a great partner, and I turned to Bill just given his extensive knowledge sure. of Royco and his life and career, and we met appropriately enough at the Old Town <laughs> Ale House, and we just kind of talked through what this could be. And, you know, when you look at the original beer tasting test, one, you know, it started with that column that you just quoted, yeah. where he's basically kind of taking the national brands to task. And really, you know, one of the things that he's flagging is the amount of money that's being spent on advertising, advertising. for terrible 
brands like Budweiser and Schlitz and so forth? And what if they actually you know put that into the product? And then he was getting all these people writing to him, particularly from some small regional breweries, being like, "Hey, have you tried?" our beer it's better and that's how he starts to get the idea that well maybe we should have some kind of test and so when i was talking to bill and liz about it we were trying to figure out well how could this work in a practical way in 2023 because when you think about it 11 judges 22 beers yeah. that's a lot of beer yeah. and the columns they don't you know reveal and none of and you can go to the mike royko papers the newberry which are yep. a great collection it's got a lot of his planning documents such as they are for this thing but none of them state like how much and like, who the judges who the judges were, yeah. were but if you're and doing, they don't state like how much beer they were drinking right yeah if you're drinking 22 <laughs> beers right. and it's 22 shot glasses that's probably not enough to get a taste but right if it's even half of 22 beers by the last six or seven your judgment might yeah. be a little altered yeah you right. might be passed out yeah. right <laughs> you might be actually passed out and then you must have talked to the great proprietor of the Old Town Ale House, yes. Mr. Bruce Elliott, a literary star of his own. And, uh, <laughs> Geriatric and, genius. And visual artist yeah. uh, of the first rate. He was into this? Yeah, I mean, it seemed like the Old Town. I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe the, originally it was at Billy Goat. Maybe it was right. you know in the Hancock. Uh, but the Old Town seemed like a good home for this particular 50th anniversary. Uh, just given you know Royko's connections to that old town area well, and in how, general, how the, the literature hangs heavy in that. Oh, place. that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When I uh, I taught a class for several years at the Newbury Library in the adult education seminar series called "The City That Drinks," Chicago, uh, Chicago Tavern and Saloon Culture, and blah blah blah. Different subtitles depending on the year. Um, but I always use the Old Town Ale House as one of the examples of both a, a survivor of the old uh, Northside German sure, Broadway, sure, right? It's sure. one of the few things that survived the widening of North Avenue in the daily era of you know, urban renewal, but also as what I would call an art bar, a bar where art and literature are taken seriously, and it's in part because of the proprietor having his own work all over the walls. Mm. It's in part because of the regulars being newspaper people, writers, journalists, second city second folk. city folks, yeah. um actors like Michael Shannon, you know, I mean, it's just a place that if you come in and sit down, everybody's equal, but if you're smart, you're more equal than everybody, you know. There's that there's that energy there that I'm sure Royko would have thrived off of. And I should just say quickly, we could have perhaps tried to do it at the Billy Goat, but you have to, you know, use whatever beers that the the place has on staff. You can't really be bringing in outside beers. And the Billy Goat on, on Lower Michigan Avenue is a permanent Mike Royko museum and it's shrine. A shrine, it's a yeah, shrine right. to Mike. Yeah. It really, it's a sort of a, a journalism museum, though very few people can go in and, and say who these people were, the faces right. or and or names. But it is really a shrine to Mike. Well, there's a legend that there's a um, a, a professor in the journalism school at Northwestern who one of the assignments he would give first-year students was go down to the Billy Goat and count how many pictures of Royko are on the wall, and they would never come back with the same number. Because there that were so many. Thrilled. But think of their parents. <laughs> what did you do at school today, honey? How much were paying? How much at Northwestern? And you, did, you went down to a bar underneath Michigan Avenue, and you looked at a bunch of photographs. And you had to take notes, and if you spelled the name wrong, it's a Medill F. <laughs> that's, that's serious. Actually, Neil Steimer tells a great story about one of his first assignments as a Medill undergraduate was to go down to the county building and get a, um, a brochure about something. And the professor never mentioned it again, and he's like, well, why do we do that? And, well, to get used to going to a building and asking for something and... You know, that, that's actually pretty, getting something done. That's actually a pretty good idea. How is this shaping up? I mean, Paul, you have left the Newberry now, but you're, you are you still involved with the whole Royko exhibit? 
I'm involved with this event, and I'll certainly be in support of the exhibit. I did a lot of research, you know, in, in the Mike Royko papers as we were preparing for this, and it's, you know, really fascinating to see how he kind of put this event together because you can go back and there's letters from different brewers there's the whole list of like those 22 beers like where he was getting them from and how he was uh you know picking them up the funniest thing is there's a a letter that's to um or from the sable institute to to him and basically he had reached out to stevens point which is a brewery up in wisconsin and wanted them to send their point special down but instead of having it delivered directly to him he had it delivered to the Sable Institute, and he would pick it up there, which is fine, but he never bothered to tell them. So they get this case of beer, and it just has Royco written on the box, and they're understandably very confused. So they write a very polite, the president writes a very polite like official letter being like, hey, we think we have this beer for you, and you know, then he went and, and picked it up. So you know, I'm still very supportive of what you know Bill is doing at the Newberry, and... I think this, yeah. Yeah, I just want to say, I think that um, one of the great things about this town is collaboration. Oh, yeah, no question. you know, all the, uh, you know, the Newbury and the Chicago Museum could be perceived as uh, competitors, but they're really in the same business. We're all in it together. And I should mention also that Paul's own outfit, Pocket Guide to Hell, he's been doing reenactments of all sorts for a long time. How did that book come to be? I know you you two collaborated on that book, and it's a wonderful book, and I'm hoping it's still in print. Right, yeah. um, Oh, the Chicago by Day and Night. Right. Yeah. 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 And that came in, that's a great story of academia, but I just wanted to (laughs) say, like like Pocket Guide to Hell, Paul did a life-size, full-scale reenactment of the Haymarket ride. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, so this little brewing thing, this is like, you know. Right, right, right. This is right right in his wheelhouse. But the uh, the book came to be because a, a guy named Michael Levine at Northwestern University Press wanted me to be a what we call a reader. Mm-hmm. Look at and he found this book from 1893 that's like a guide to nightlife in Chicago outside during of the, during the fair during the fair. And I'm reading this manuscript and I'm like, it was first of all it was a, like a Google Books download and the book was illustrated, so all the illustrations just turned into alphanumeric gobbledygook. And I'm like, well, first of all, I got to fix this. Secondly, you need you have to have like notes in an introduction or no one will understand what the hell's going on. And I didn't see the trap that had been laid for me, which was, oh, would you like to do that? Uh, and I said, I would love to do that, but only if I can have Paul DeRica do it with me. Because I knew he knew more about the fair than I do, or did or do, or ever will. Yeah. Um, so that's it's still in print, uh, Northwestern University Press. That's a good book. I think um, I've written about it. In, yeah, yeah. It's, I, I think if you're into the fair... If you read Eric Larson's novel, uh, and, Devil in the White City... And who hasn't? Yeah. You might want to read this thing from the, exact, from the actual era rather than just the sort of uh, ex post facto. You know, one of the interesting things about this coming Sunday's Point uh, Croco beer tasting event at the Old Town Ale House is not only, and you guys might address this, I don't drink beer, I hate beer. Uh, <laughs> not only has the, the beer industry transformed as much as the, you know, aerospace industry, uh, the, the neighborhood taverns, mm-hmm. which have always intrigued me having been alive for the death of neighborhood taverns uh, bill talk about that i mean the old town alehouse to me is a neighborhood right, tavern. right it's a neighborhood tavern in that the vast majority of its regulars are from the neighborhood it's yeah. still got a densely populated area around it um, but the death of the neighborhood tavern is both um over exaggerated and absolutely accurate like, growing up in Rogers Park and Edgewater as a kid, there were dozens of taverns. Absolutely. But you still had an industrial economy where there were three factory shifts a day. Mm-hmm. and were, So some guys are getting off work at 7 in the morning, and some guys are going to work at 11 at night. There's this 24-7 thing. 
as the you can if you could trace the number of uh, tavern licenses, it exactly parallels the decline of industrial employment sure. in Chicago. Sure. So the Old Town Ale House is a remnant of that. It's uh, the neighborhood has gotten more dense, so there's uh, there's a lot more people there, but they tend to work downtown in the Loop, so it's more you know afternoon, early evening kind of place. But don't you both find that that the the vanishing of neighborhood taverns has sort of fractured neighborhoods. Oh, yeah. No, I completely agree. I mean, for me, you know, as you mentioned, you know, I moved to the Chicago History Museum. And so now the Old Town Ale House is conveniently <laughs> located. Tavern, yeah. Right. It's conveniently yeah. located on my commute back home. And it's surprising in that, you know, a little over a year that I've been at the History Museum, that the people that I've met there. And Bill's right. I mean, there are a mixture of people who live in the neighborhood or mm. people who kind of work in the area. Some are relatively new. Some have been going there for decades, anywhere from 25 to 30 years. And there's just like a sort of sense of, and you know, what I observe too is that people know about each other's lives and they look out for each other as well. And they look out for the place, right? So if you've got a good regular at a bar, he'll notice that, you know, a glass needs to be brought up to the table or he'll go out and grab the mail or or something like that and uh, for the place. And that, you know, kind of helps build a um like a sense of cohesiveness within a community no that question. doesn't exist and how you get to know your neighbors i mean one story there's that great interview that turkle and royko did together where i think turkle is kind of pressing royko on something about like you know the wife calling the tavern and the husband saying yeah. oh i'm not here or whatever and royko's response is like no that's not actually what the wife would want to hear. She'd want to know that her husband is there, <laughs> is there. because here, that's his regular place, right? Yes. That's it's the problem is is if the bar says no, he's not here, because then what is he out then doing? Yeah, right? He's out robbing somebody right, yeah. or something. Uh, Joe and I worked at for many years up in Rogers Park, Canines on Devon yeah. Avenue, back when there still were payphones. Next to the payphone was a chalkboard, and it said, "Sign here if you're sign below if you're not here." <laughs> I am spending this entire hour with the, that last voice you heard was Northwestern University professor Bill Savage, and he is here with Paul Dorica, the director of exhibitions at the Chicago History Museum, which will always be the <laughs> Chicago Historical Society to me. He's previously worked at the Newberry Library, which is putting on a big Mike Royko exhibition. I want to ask you guys after the news at 930 Bill, you you have a real insight into, I think, Mike's potency in this age. He has been Mm -hmm. dead for more than 25, roughly 25 years now. And why? That's the question I want you to answer after the news. Here's the news, ladies and gentlemen. Bill Savage from Northwestern University has had time to think about uh, why when he teaches Mike Royko uh, at classes either at Northwestern or at the Newberry, uh, Mike resonates so with people who have never heard of him before. Right. The reason is he's basically a short story writer. Um, he would have denied this. He said, I'm not trying to be yeah. Mark Twain. <clears throat> but his, you know, there's a myth in the culture that certain kinds of writing aren't literary. That like journalism is just hack work. It's just you turn it out every day. Yeah. Um, but in reality, the use of figurative language that we expect from poetry and the use of uh, really sophisticated narrative structures that we expect in short stories, Mike nails them both. No question. Um, the columns, some of the columns I teach have what I call the left turn. He's led you along, and you think you know where he's going, and then bam, like the column about the Picasso, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. it turns into this whole other thing. Um, and so he's got this narrative uh, oomph that I think 
might be a discipline journalists get because they got in back in the days twelve hundred words. Now it'd be nine hundred words. So you gotta compress it, and so you gotta use that poetic language as well. And yeah, there's a certain selection going on here, right? I mean, we're not reading every column, we're not reading random columns. Oh, of course not. Sure, sure, sure. But he is a, uh, if you look at the history of Chicago literature, going back to the 19th century, um, journalism plays two roles. One is, it's raw material for writers to use in what they are going to produce. The city gives you stories. The other is training as a writer to produce. So I'm thinking Sandberg, Dreiser, Algren. I mean, a lot of these guys weren't uh, journalists before they started no, yeah, at other things. Absolutely. And But what journalism makes you do is be productive on a deadline, get it done, and move on to the next thing. Yeah, I mean, Mike in the early days was writing six six a week, and I, it, which is still one of the most stunning accomplishments. Right. And, you know, and batting something in the neighborhood of 800 right. with those right. things, right. too. And later it cuts down to four a week, and people were still, like, on it. Like, no problem. Yeah. So, again, my uh, not to be dismissive in any way, but, you know, 18 to 22-year-olds right now have grown up in the post-newspaper era. No question. They don't, know, you know, yeah. I grew up with four newspapers a day delivered to the house. Yep. And you read them all because that's what it meant to be a grown-up. And now it's like you're reading this or that online. You get this or that from whatever sources. And when they get their head around the idea that this guy was writing this stuff day after day after day, and he had a voice... The, the metaphor I've been using lately, and I, I hesitate to do this for this audience maybe, is he was the equivalent of a social media influencer. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you might wonder, you know, what are the Kardashians up to as right. a sort of a shallow thing? But there are people online who have a, a presence that because we now live in a world of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all this stuff, who if you get to know them and trust them, they will influence you in a positive way. And that was what newspaper columnists were. They were your everyday voice that you heard and if they were, I mean, I remember one of the critics that I read in my research when I first started teaching Mike stuff said there's four, four, four degrees of columnists. Bad, okay, no, bad, good, great, and Mike Reco. Who said that? I, I don't remember. i got to find it. It's Could in a file me. folder somewhere. Could have been me. No, I don't think it was yeah, you, because yeah. then I would have remembered. <laughs> um, but so there's this thing where he was just he head and shoulders above so many. The fact that Jimmy Breslin said Boss was the best book ever written about an American city. Yes, and that is a man with not an inconsiderable ego, and Jimmy Breslin. Yeah. Arguably like Royko's, you know, Godzilla to Royko's Mothra, or vice versa, yeah. right? The two big big, oh, yeah. uh, big uh. guys. So once well, I get my students to see how the newspaper world worked, and then I hand them these columns, they eat them up with a spoon, and again, without fail, every single time I teach my Chicago r- literature class, this Royko is the writer. They say, I want to read more. See, I'm so happy to hear that. And as Paul, who's a real museum guy, that is going to be one of the difficult things at this Newbury exhibition to get at and and give a museum goer that same kind of uh, sense, don't you think? I mean, I agree it'll be a challenge. Yeah. But, I mean, one thing that, you know, I mean, I experience, you know, reading Royko's columns anywhere from the 1960s up through the 1990s is he's writing about a city that's still recognizable to us today and if we can get at that then i think you can make the connection with the visitor because he's servicing issues and problems that we're still contending with on a daily basis whether it's around class or race or political corruption and you know in some ways or what or neighborhood taverns or neighborhood yeah, taverns right, right, um right, right. And, well yeah and then the <laughs> yeah, sort exactly. of changes that, that come with it and, and 
what was then urban renewal or what we would call yeah. gentrification today. And so I think, you know, that's where you try to kind of form the, the connection with the visitor is that here you've got an opportunity to kind of make sense of, of the city that you live in. And you've got this great guide in the form of, of Mike Royko. I mean, somebody who knew it so deeply and so well and who tracked these very same issues over the course of, you know, over three decades. Yeah. And one of the challenges and, and you know, Sarah Boyd Alvarez at the Newberry and her team that are sure. working on this exhibit that, you know, Paul sort of lit the fire for. Um, one of the challenges you have to have physical objects Correct. that speak to the world that is there. You can't just have a room full of newspaper columns hanging from the wall. No, no, um, although personally, no, we I thought could, about that. When we I, yeah, first meeting, yeah, Flea, you were that. at some of the meetings. I'm yeah. like, can't we just have like a giant wall covered in columns and people will stand in front of them and read them and appreciate mm-hmm. their literary brilliance? No, what we got to do is what Paul just rec- uh, said. You know, connected to the physical world we live in now, and there's so much of Chicago now that is right in the same vein as what Royko wrote about. But there are so many changes that are fascinating. Again, like the honor box. The right. fact that you'd go yeah. and put a quarter, quarter in the box and take just one paper right. on your honor. Right. But that fact that that replaced the newsstands run by often military veterans mm-hmm. or people mm-hmm. with disabilities. The fact that that replaced newsies, little boys on the street, yeah. like uh, Sam Sianis. Sure. Or not, pardon me, Bill Sianis. Bill Sianis. First did it down in the stockyards. So there's this this continuity and change, and that's one way to understand cities. Cities are patterns of continuity and change. If there's no continuity, you're Schaumburg. Yeah. If there's no change, you're not Chicago. You got to have change. Mm-hmm. Things have to evolve. But I would say that you know the other hook. I mean, you, Bill, you mentioned like you know social media influencers right. a moment ago. I mean, I think the other thing too is that Royko had such a. a distinct and strong personality that comes through in his writing. And that's also reflected in the materials that are at the Newberry, right? You really are kind of looking at a person's life through these kind of objects. And in that way, I mean, it's not all that dissimilar how someone might present their their life through social media. Right. This was a guy, I mean, he he loved sports. He loved, you know... He loved his, movies. He, he loved, loved movies. His he loved taste art. in music was right. pretty broad. Yeah. Right. And I think yeah. that's so surprised a lot. There's a lot, you know, to draw on from from yeah. that collection. And one of the one of the courses I did at the Newbury many years ago was uh, I paired Richard J. Daly and Mike Royko as personifications of the city, and they are very. There's a lot of similarities, you know, recent immigrant family background, no question, neighborhood sure. upbringing, sure. and then couldn't be more different in certain ways, right? Mm-hmm. Daly's, you know, uh, one of Mike's greatest columns is his uh, uh, eulogy when Daly died. You oh, know, Daly embodied the city, brilliant, where he, where he was so even handed. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mike himself, I think, represents the, you know, the degree to which Daly was small-minded and, you know, a certain angle on race and other mm-hmm. things. And Mike was the opposite. So you can take two guys from the same basic background and come up with two very different versions of Chicago. Well, because partly because both of those guys, and it's fascinating. You should write a book about this. They both had, you know what? They both had very different jobs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They both had very different tasks. And Daly was a, a creature of hierarchies. Mm. If you want to understand Richard J. Daly, every institution in his life was hierarchical, and you knew your spot in it, and you, you could move up. And if you moved up, people below you obeyed. Yeah. Mike was in a, uh, a lateral world yeah there's a hierarchy in any newspaper you got your editors you got your publishers but you're mostly on one level speaking to your audience you're together with your audience Uh, uh. Um, and i also think the fact that mike served in the military 
not long after desegregation, helped make him so much more progressive about race than, than guys like Daly were. Yeah, no, no question. No question. So this event that's coming up on Sunday, uh, I'm just trying to get back to it. It's sold out, ladies and gentlemen. That's uh, please do not show up and try to talk your way in. You have Nobody has enough clout. It just ain't going to happen. Nobody. Mike would. But you've got people like Gary Houston, the great actor, is going to be there. And what's Andy Shaw going to do with this thing? Andy right. Shaw, who is a, a, right. a, a an aficionado of the old town ale house. Right. Well, Liz reached out to Andy, and he's interested in, in coming and sharing some memories about Mike. And I think he might be part, uh, at the end, of kind of giving a toast to Mike oh, to kind of end good. the event. Yeah. And, of course, Bruce Elliott, the proprietor. Yeah, right. Uh, Bruce will be there as one of the judges. We're letting him judge. Well, Bruce, uh, Bruce knows beer. There's no question about it. Yeah, whether he has good taste is another question. But there's also going to be a, a number of people from Chicago's beer culture, John Carruthers from Revolution Brewing right. and others. Yeah, who really know beer. Yeah, right. yeah. and the, the difference in today's world, I think, frankly, I think Mike would love the fact that now we have lots of small breweries all over Chicago. I think he would, too. Because those are neighborhood institutions, yep. and Mike was a neighborhood guy. No question. No question. We'll be back in a couple minutes. Welcome back for some final minutes with uh, Bill Savage of Northwestern and the Newberry, I'm going to say, and uh, Paul Derica, the History Museum's Director of Exhibitions. Uh, I grew up going to, lucky enough to live uh, three blocks west of the... Uh, history museums i grew up going there it was like a playground for me trying to break into the couch tomb so <laughs> we did we, we would take hammers and try yeah. to break in we thought mummies in there or money gold yeah. gold what's going on at the museum well you know we had an exhibition that just opened in may which is kind of appropriate given what we've been talking about mm-hmm. today it's called back home polish chicago it's mm-hmm. looking at the polish community in the city a couple neighborhood taverns are featured in it sure as well as some great accordion music <laughs> as, as well no we do we have an interactive where you can listen to a whole range of uh polish music but have some uh, little wally tunes are you liking it, it over there yeah you're, yeah you're still mm-hmm. relatively new one of the yeah. great things you did in the story mm-hmm. that i was doing you you let me look at uh, Kukla, Fran, and I don't know. Oh, Fran, that's right, yeah. Course, but Kukla. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Fran's in Fran's, Frank's tomb. Yeah, she's there. She's a right. mummy. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> Fran we all wonder what's in but... <laughs> yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah, no, I, uh, you know, so I, I work in the exhibitions department, but I get to do, you know, some other things as well. And even today, I just did a walking tour that was looking at the 90th anniversary of the repeal of Prohibition. Oh. And the way in which it was, you know, commemorated here in, in Chicago. Mm. And that was a lot of fun. And I've got a walking tour coming up that I'm doing for the museum that looks at the uh, century of progress. So lots of, you know, people know a lot about the 1893 World's Fair. Yeah. You know, Bill and I worked on that project. Um, but it's been a lot of fun to be able to do research around the 33-34. Sally Rand. Fair. Exactly. Sally Rand. That's right. Sally Rand. And there's still a tavern named after the... An, oh, the Sky Ride. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Now there's yeah. a good... <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. But let me... Actually, yeah. one thing I'd like, playing off what your question there, mm, you, you know, sure. the objects... One of the things that museums do is preserve the physical reality of the past. Yeah. And so, like, at the Newberry right now, if you wanted to go and, and hold in your hands the first Oscar for screenwriting, Ben Hecht, ben Hecht. Ben Hecht won it, and it's at the Newberry. Um, all the objects that are at the History Museum. But why does Royko endure? Because he creates a textual city that lives on even after the physical city changes. In my classes, the examples I always use are Bronzeville is no more. Mm-hmm. But we have Richard Wright, Gwendolyn Brooks, Lorraine Hansberry. The stockyards are long closed. We have the jungle. And we have James Farrell's fiction that shows it and, and, sure. and Sandbrook's poetry that shows it. So the textual city that Royko wrote about, as Paul said earlier, like it's still here, 
but things have changed. And so at the Newberry, you know, if you're interested in Royco, you can go and, and his papers are there. Some stuff will be a little out of touch because we're going to be putting it in the exhibit. Right, right, but right. it is there for you to go and explore. I'd also recommend very highly uh, the two volumes from University of Chicago, uh, One More Time and The Best of Mike. Um, and if you go to any used bookstore in Chicago that's any good, there are his old collections just of columns yeah. that are out there. So while Sunday's event next week is sold out, Royco is on tap and available all over town. That's really well put. That's well put. And I think you don't have to enroll in Northwestern to uh, learn this, but, <laughs> well, yeah. or just call Bill. Uh, call. <laughs> well, I do teach classes at the Newbury Library as well. What do you do? Um, What's your next Right now one? I'm doing one on The Great Gatsby, almost over. I'm taking fall off because i got a lot on my plate. Uh, I might do a class on Huck Finn in the winter-spring. Um, but at some point, I'm sure I'll get well, back where, to doing. Where did he drink here? What, what um, well, Twain West? came to town a bunch of times. We'd have to look it up. I'm sure he went to the Union League Club because he was. A, he was at the Palmer House. He was at the I Palmer House. Yeah, yeah. But every, I mean, Twain's got one of the great quotes about Chicago. Every time you come, it's a new place. Yeah. Um, but he was pre and post fire, right? More or less. Basically, Chicago is recognizably what it was a hundred years ago. Paul, when no. people come in, when when people visit the History Museum. What is it they're looking for? Are they just looking for a kind of general, you know, I, I have with a deep, deep abiding thanks to my dad and mom, interest and passion for history. I visit any history museum I can. But I'm curious, maybe there are other people like that, but what are they looking for when they come to the history museum? You know, I, I think, and this is just based on my observation, um, I think, you know, we have two kind of, dominant kinds of visitors you know one they're the visitors perhaps coming from outside the city and they're looking for a kind of sense of like how chicago connects to the country at large right in the Mm -hmm. nation at large and oftentimes they're really surprised to learn all the different ways in which chicago has shaped the history of this country and but then you know so many more of our visitors i mean they're, they're locals and i think what they're really looking for is kind of a sense of like where they're coming from in the city and where their personal stories connect into the larger story of the city. And how they and fit. If they can, how, how they, they fit, fit, right. And if they can find that connection, I think it becomes a really meaningful experience for them. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, what Bill's saying about Mike and Mike's work, uh, you can't get that from Ben Hecht's too far removed. I, I am a fan, a fan of Ben Hecht's work. I think Nelson Algren is for many people uh, a little hard to access. Nelson is a Nelson can be. And you tell me this, Bill. Nelson can be a hard read. Well, I mean, I wrote my dissertation about Algren, so I can talk about hard reads all day long. Yeah, he's he's tough to get into. Um, you've got to sort of know where he's coming from stylistically. Yeah, yeah. But my students also react very well to City on the Make and uh, some some yeah. of the short fiction from the Neon Wilderness. Um, but in terms of like aid and okay, so if we look at the history of Chicago literary journalism. You know, George Ade, mm. um, I think the Old Time Saloon book is is still accessible, but a lot of what he wrote is kind of, it's based on a culture we no longer live in. Exactly. And yeah. so, like, for yeah. my favorite example is one of his stories is about, a, a you know, a prosperous businessman from, moved to Chicago from Indiana, and is, you know, he's at his club talking, and his wife is like, well, I've hired a new servant girl. And he gets home, and it's a woman he went to grade school with. Mm. We Well, this is like a sitcom trope that makes... Yeah. We don't have servants in the house anymore. Right, right. So, like, the modern sitcom with the slovenly dad and the good-looking mom and the, the daughter is smart and the kid is a thug. 
Like those conventions are a lot of what AIDS work is about. And Hecht is just the nightlife of the teens and 20s. Oh, yeah. And that's yeah. beyond. But Royko, again, is still very contemporary. I couldn't agree more. What book, the, the, the two collections, the two collections which were among the best-selling books in the history of the University of Chicago Press. Uh, right. The first one, the first one more so. The first one, the, yeah. yeah, the first one was, I think Studs named it, I don't remember. Well, it's, it's a quote from uh, Mike's column about the Daily News closing. That like it's a saddest day oh, of the summer. Right. When that's a nice. The column. only ones mm-hmm. you can't play. It's it's yeah, the sun's on, going down. On, no more softball. On. One more. One more, one one more, more time. One, one more time. Uh, okay, I'm going to see you guys next Sunday. What are you guys going to do? What are you doing at this thing anyway, Bill? For those for the people for the <laughs> thousands of people out there who are not able to attend. Um, Somebody going to film this thing? I. Don't know. It will be photographed. There'll be photographs. Maybe we'll tape some stuff. I'm going to do a a very brief introduction of um, Mike and his value as a literary writer. Um, Gary Houston's going to read his very first column, which is about different kinds of taverns. I know. Um, we have a, uh, and his a, last column, his very last column yeah. was about the Cubs, Cubs of course, <laughs> Wrigley and, and, and the Wrigley's being racist. Yeah. Unbelievable. And yeah. you know, not inaccurate yeah. uh, as a baseball historian, I can yes. say that too. And then we have an accordion player who's going to read right. Hope Arthur. Hope Arthur's going to read a column about accordions. Play a We're song. Play a song. Maybe we're going to have, uh, Andy Shaw do a toast. Um, basically it's a celebration of, of Mike as a, um, an important part of Chicago history, not just Chicago literature, but Chicago itself. He is this city in so many different ways, and it's also a way to drum up to drum up interest in advance of the Newberry. Well, I think exhibition. Th- you know, frankly, we when we were planning this, you know, you're always worried doing any kind of public event. Who's going to show up? Of course, it sold out before we advertised. I know. I mean, as soon as there was any inkling of it online, bam, 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 it was gone. And you've you know you've got to respect the occupancy card of any tavern, right? You got to sure. got to be you know careful. But this I think bodes really well for the interest that is organically part of this town and its its people who are engaged in its culture. That the exhibit at the Newbury again, like roughly June to September of 2024, is going to be something that people are going to come from out of town to see. They're going to go see and they're going to bring their friends to see it again. I'm really looking forward to to working on it and having as much of it. Uh, Having it be there, it's going to be great. Well, one of the reasons is newspapers, as we all know, were a... Royko was a visitor at the breakfast table or the afternoon or at the, at the corner saloon when you Every got off speech. work yep. and went in the daily news and you got the afternoon paper. He was with you every day. Mm-hmm. That is why people, even today are as passionate about comic strips right. as they are about the you know the state of the nation right. and it's an amazing thing and it it goes to the sort of huge part that newspapers used to play in people's lives right and it, it i think that's going to be one of the uh, things i'm looking forward to most about this exhibit is making it clear yep and i have to do this again my students at northwestern are great but the concept of a dead wood being dropped on the front doorstep every morning. No. And one of the great things about Royko's career, though, is it does sort of trace this arc of change in newspaper culture. The death of the afternoon paper because of the rise of suburban car culture and the TV news and the radio news taking over that afternoon slot. Well, and not building pretty plants in the suburbs. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's complicated. Yeah. When, when your newspaper is going to show up without the box scores in it, why are you bothering? <laughs> um, and then, you know, the, the sort of con, you know, national consolidation. I mean, he leaves the Sun-Times for the Tribune because of Rupert Murdoch. Sure. Well, I think might still be a figure in our culture today causing yes, various kinds of trouble. Yes, he is. So Royko's career and his life 
are also a history lesson about American media and about the way we get and consume and understand the news about the world we live in. You people out there who are listening, keep your ears peeled because certainly we will keep talking about this upcoming exhibition at uh, at the Newberry Library. It's bound to be a sensation of a sort if if the three of us and many other people who are involved can figure out can figure <laughs> out how to present it. Yes, Bill's right about my idea of like, well, let's just paste uh, five thousand columns on the wall and let people go up and read them and look at them. Uh, <laughs> go visit the. Uh, Go to if you have not been there for a while. The Chicago History Museum is a is a grand, grand place. It's very important to me. That's where I sort of grew up. Uh, Although but, it was the Historical Society, and I always called it the Hysterical Society. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> I always called <laughs> no it the Historical Society. Uh, they used to have movies there. They used to have movies yeah. every Sunday afternoon. What's the website, Paul? Oh, um, ChicagoHistory.org. That's good. Uh, I will not give the Northwestern University website because it's uh, in, er- in right. every newspaper story you've been reading. Uh, Bill, thank you. You know you know how much I like and admire you two guys, and uh, this was great fun. And I'll see you both next Sunday. Right yeah. back at you. Thanks. Okay, take care. Bye.